Hello, I'm Scott Winnell and this is TW Now. Welcome. The Silk Road was an ancient concept used for trade between China and the rest of the known world at the time. Today, China is spearheading an initiative known as the Belt and Road Initiative, or the New Silk Road. This initiative is built on the idea of reestablishing ancient trade routes and international relationships. It uses naval and overland routes to create stronger and longer-lasting trade relationships for China. What is the state of the new Silk Road, and what does it involve? Where will it lead? We actually have an article here for you to take a look at, just giving you an idea of the scope of this project. Napoleon once said that China is a sleeping lion. Let her sleep, for when she wakes, she will shake the world. How do Napoleon's comments relate to China today? And what light does the Bible shed on this newly revived initiative and the nation behind it? Our two returning guests will help answer some of these questions today. We'd like to welcome back Mr. Dexter Wakefield. Mr. Wakefield is a minister and Bible teacher. He's a student of geopolitics and finance and economics. He's also traveled to China in the past and has written about China. Mr. John Meekin, we'd like to welcome you as well. Mr. Meekin is joining us via Skype from England. He's a Bible teacher and a minister as well, and a journalist who also studies in-depth <coughs> geopolitics. So, gentlemen, again, welcome back to both of you. Thank you for being on the program today, and we are excited with what you have to share. Let me just note to our audience, if you have questions as we go along today, please send them our way, and we'll do our best to answer them. And also, as you feel motivated, we encourage you to subscribe, like, or share today's program as well. <coughs> Well, gentlemen, let's launch in here. We talk about the Silk Road today, the new Silk Road, the Belt and Road Project. What was the original Silk Road? And how did it impact China at that point in time? Mr. Meekin, if you'd like to go ahead and start. Well, uh, we think of um, the original Silk Road, uh, basically connecting China uh, across Europe and uh, across, but it didn't begin with the Chinese. It actually, uh, this trading route uh, really goes back to the Persians. Let me but just they, mention too, we've got an image that we can show our yes, audience. Yes, pictures worth a thousand, a thousand words, here it is. And so you will see actually two elements to it. Uh, there's an overland element, China linking uh, Asia uh, across to Europe, coming across the, the top of India and through Persia. But look at all the sea routes as well. So when we think of uh, the Silk Road, don't think just that. Think um, the the oceans as well. And it's obviously uh, a good connection between China in the east and Asia and then across to Europe in the west. Mr. Wakefield. I like to think about the Silk Road in terms of unintended consequences sometimes. One of the biggest consequences that the Silk Road ever had was when it was cut off. The Ottoman Turk Empire uh, cut it off from the West in part of their war against um, Europe in, I guess, 1543. I don't know, 15, 1453. 1453 was when that was. And what happened was that it started off the age of discovery. They had to find another way to get to China to get all the goods and the trade that they had. So they started going around the Horn of Africa any way that they could do it, and they started discovering the world that way. There was a smart fellow who said, well, I can get there by going west. We know who he was. <laughs> yeah, we did. 1493, 
1492, he sailed and discovered over there and then turned around and, and sailed back and said he'd been to India and named them Indians, which we still carry that with us today. So it, the Silk Road in its uh, use over the centuries was very important, but when it was stopped for a while, it also changed very much and changed the context of the Silk Road and how it was used. Do either of you recall uh, roughly when the Silk Road began? Um, the, the Chinese version of it began uh, two to 300 BC, but the, of course the 300 BC were the times of the Greeks. The Greeks followed on from the Persians, so the Persian version preceded um, 300 BC. It uh, goes back that far. So it's, I think that's a powerful thing to think about as well, that 300 BC to 1453, you got close to 2,000 years that this trade mechanism was in place when it ceased uh, around 1453. Let's, let's move on to another question. As we think about the, the new Silk Road uh, that is being built today, this Belt and Road project, uh, what do we know about it? What is the state of the Belt and Road and what is the purpose? Why is China creating this new Silk Road? Oh, well, huge reasons, a lot of them are, are economic. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier, maybe we can launch into a bit of this now and cover more of it later. But uh, China has a huge exposure in terms of their trade needs with the United States and other parts of the West across the Pacific. But this opens up a huge opportunity for them to have their um, transportation infrastructure going back towards the East to be able to get to Europe and their markets in that direction. It's another reason why they've been trying to keep the China Sea open, militarizing that and so forth. This is all part of a great plan to establish China as the new hegemon in the world. Mm. Mr. Meekin. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to say. <laughs> this is why the subject is so fascinating. Uh, all, all of Dexter said, of course, is absolutely right. Uh, but it's all to do with world politics and it's all to do with empire. And if I could take you back to the, a quote, I think you said at the little, the beginning there, that uh, Napoleon said rather famously uh, that uh, China was like a sleeping lion, but was waking up. Uh, waking up from what? Uh, well, we in the West have very little knowledge of China. When we think of um, empires, we think of the great British empire. We say that was the greatest empire the world has ever known. Well, it depends how you measure these things, but I can tell you the biggest empire the world has probably never known <laughs> is China. And up to 1800, about 1820, 1840, um, was the Chinese empire. And then uh, they themselves refer to the 1800s, the 19th century, as a century of humiliation. And due to internal circumstances, which we could talk about if we had the time, uh, the Chinese empire ceased to be. And so really that happened right through to the end of the uh, Second World War and then 1949 when Mao Zedong and his revolution started has begun China awakening. And so the Silk Road is a, an integral part of the current Chinese leadership's attempts to wake China up and really bring it back to the way it always was, number one in the world as far as empires are concerned. I uh, just just add to that regarding to, to Mao Zedong, uh, 
Yeah, he, he sort of woke, woke China up and uh, got them out of their dynastic period. However, um, his policies, economic policies, devastated and strangled the economic energies for the, of the Chinese people for generations. And they are only just now beginning to come out and realizing their potential. It was his system that devastated their, um, what it calls, tens of millions of deaths from the failure of their agricultural policies, their industrial policy was a disaster, and they were pretty well walled off from the Western world. I did have the opportunity to go there in 1984, and um, when we were there as part of a church delegation going there, um, we were, and once again, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but I was reading the China Daily, and it said that they were having their uh, Great People's Congress, and when all of their representatives of the, the people of the, of the party had gathered, and that they were doing away with the Marxist economics that they had used for so long, and it was a long list of things that they were doing. I said, this can't happen. This isn't going on. I, they're doing away with the labor theory of value. That's the underpinning of the Marxist economic system. And I, I didn't believe a word what I, of what I saw. I thought it was propaganda. So then I got home and read about what they had done. I still have that newspaper at home, all marked up and everything. While the, the church group was there, they made this move to uh, more of a market uh, economic approach as opposed to the Marxist economic approach. Interesting that that happened. Hmm. It really sort of started there. Xi Jinping, uh, the, go, go ahead. I'll, I'll well, invite uh, you to go ahead and make a comment. I do want to mention, though, um, our, our guys in the back, if you could go ahead and bring up the image as well of the new Silk Road. And uh, you might see some similarities between the one that we saw a few minutes ago. Go ahead, Mr. Meekin. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go straight to commenting on the new Silk Road. When uh, you first sent this to me, I looked at this in some astonishment, to be honest, because this puts on paper and uh, in front of you graphically just to see the full extent of all that's going on. Now, let me just choose a couple of things. Uh, you see at the bottom of where Saudi Arabia is, uh, where Ethiopia is, I don't know if you've got a pointer, but at the, at the bottom of the Red Sea there leading to Suez, you've got the Horn of Africa. Right there is, is a port. If you look at the legend of the ports, there's a square, uh, blue uh, square, to indicate ports which China has in some way control of. The one at Djibouti is also a military base. How about that? So that can be taken into, uh, into the overall picture. So this, in I would say in American basketball terms, this amounts to a full court press <laughs> of, <laughs> of bringing the whole world uh, into China's ambit uh, for all the right reasons, as far as she's concerned, uh, enhancing trade and building up the areas where she is, which is why it's called the belt. It's an industrial development belt, and it consists of roads, it consists of uh, railways, it consists of pipelines for energy, for oil, for gas, and industrial development, manufacturing development. And uh, who's going to be... Um, the personnel involved in all this? Who's the personnel involved in, in Africa and all the uh, marshalling of African natural resources to send back to China? The Chinese are. So a million Chinese have been in and around Africa. Uh, and so this amounts to a huge, I won't call it an invasion, but you know what I mean. It's a huge influx or an exflux <laughs> of Chinese uh, to take part in all this. And it's all part of, um, uh, of China's ambition 
to get back to where her status really was, to make her the dominant power, <coughs> the dominant trading power, not just in Asia, but throughout the world. I, I would agree completely uh, with, with what uh, John is saying. Um, I think there's a carrot on a stick there. You just outlined the carrot. I'll tell you about the stick. There's something that many people don't know, and that's China's external debt. They have, they admit to $2 trillion worth of external debt, over 60% of which is short term. That's money that they owe other people. Other people put that, other agencies put it at more like $3 trillion or more. They must have this trade and they must have all of this um, going on, the income, in order to support and sustain that debt. We think of them as having a great deal of foreign reserves. They do, but they also have a great deal of foreign debt. They also have a great deal of internal debt, um, uh, much of which is uh, very shadowy. It's called shadow banking, and a lot of people really don't understand quite how much that is. It's, it's very opaque. It's hard to figure out what it is. So China could have quite a few vulnerabilities to that if their trade with the United States, say, should be stopped completely or simply tariffed and was cut down like it's being done now, they need to be able to go back to the East as opposed to the West. So you see them militarily securing the South China Sea, um, militarizing the Paracel Islands, militarizing the Spratly Islands, so that they can control their trade routes going to the East by sea, and then they're building the ones that you were just illustrating overland um, going back to the, to the east. So this is something I think that is essential for them to do. And of course it presents a huge opportunity as well if they're successful. Um, I think we can all think nicely and kindly to increase in world trade, uh, rise in standard of living for everybody and being backward nations in Africa. All these things are very good. I think the problem with the Silk Road is it arouses concerns about motive, uh, about why this is happening, because at the same time all this trading is happening and, and, and peaceful development is happening, um, it is also the military which is being um, developed at a furious pace. Look at um, the advances they've made in space technology. So China's goal is to be number one in the world across all categories of uh, of state performance by about 2040. But the point that is very important, if I could just hearken back to another icon we think of when we think of China, not just as a sleeping lion. We think of the Great Wall of China. Well, uh, that wall is being constructed even as we speak. Not a physical wall, but an ideological wall. America, uh, sorry, uh, China is quite happy to trade with the rest of the world. Uh, try ha quite happy to join in the free market system. We hope that she will move to our values, but she hopes we will move to their values. Mm. She is undermining mm. the Washington post-World War II Washington consensus. Uh, she's not going to become democratic anytime soon. And she is a bit like a certain gentleman in America, very much for nationalism, not internationalism. I'm not sharing things out, but being number one, and because of being number one, being able to control the international agenda. Mr. Meekin, I wanted to come back to something. Um, <clears throat> Xi Jinping, as we've talked about before, has made the observation, uh, in, actually in relation to Napoleon's quote, that China is the gentle lion. 
um, they're, they're, they're not really ambitious in terms of war or taking over, but they've got this gentle and, and helpful ambition. Uh, Mr. Meekin, you were talking before, uh, when, before the program, and you were giving some, you're sharing some statistics in some different um, areas of their economy and society where they have specific ambitions. And I was wondering if you or Mr. Wakefield could remind us or let the audience know what are some of those areas where China really has lofty goals in the next 5, 10, 20, 25 years? Well, let, let, sorry, go ahead. Let me just mention on, on Napoleon's comment and the sleeping lion and uh, uh, Xi Jinping, Jinping's comment about them being the smiling lion. Well, whether it's a smiling lion or a smiling dragon, they both eat their adversaries. Hmm. And uh, once they have the power, they will surely use it as, as strongly as they can. I think uh, uh, Mr. Beacon has some uh, great comments about this. We were talking earlier. I'd like to hear what he has to say. Okay. Well, let me just complete the quote. Because although this is Napoleon's quote going back to 1817, in 2014, when she uh, visited uh, France, she was he was... Um, very concerned about reassuring them. So he went on, he mentioned this quote, China is a sleeping lion, let her sleep, for when she wakes, he, she will shake the world. This is what he continued on to say. Chinese people treasure peace and hope to seek, maintain, and enjoy peace together with other nations in the world. The only problem is <laughs> that, though that sounds wonderful, it is the hegemon or the nascent or potential hegemon that is saying that and really china wants things done on you know according to the way it wants to do things and look china is if she becomes the, the new hegemon will do what all hegemons do and that is they control the agenda and they, they would prefer to do it peacefully but when push comes to shove as with the british empire as with any other empire then they're going to enforce it by force and what I think is very worrying is uh, Chinese attitude towards Taiwan and also the South China Sea as evidence of a peaceful approach. Uh-uh, they're ours, they say. And any attempt by America to do anything about that, they will repulse with force. So back to what uh, um, Mr. Winayo said, um, here are the Chinese goals. By 2025, China expects to be, wants to be the dominant power in 10 leading technologies. In 2035, that's another 10 years on, it wants to be the innovative, innovative leader across all advanced technologies. And in 2049, which is China's centenary going back to 1949 and the new China, it wants to be number one in the world, including military, including space, every area you know, of life, um, it wants to be number one in the world across all of that. The question is, how is she going to get there peacefully? The real question is, how is the challenger to the hegemon, which is China, with the hegemon being America, how is America going to respond to all of this? 
And uh, there's another comment that I'd like to make, but I think I should hand it back to you for the moment. Yeah, let me just ask for a quick clarification, um, Mr. Wakefield Hegemon. Would you could you just define that operationally for our audience? That's uh, someone who uh, dominates a particular area in a particular sphere. Right now, uh, the United States is dominant after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union was a hegemon in Asia around them. Now, the United States is the world is said to be the world hegemon. Okay, so it's this this whole role of wanting to be use a very uh, vernacular term, the top dog, uh, the, the leader, the, the respected country in the world or in the region. Oh, I'll just, just mention that a lion only smiles when its belly's full, when it's <laughs> satisfied. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think the lion is smiling yet. It's presenting that, but it'll be a lot happier later on, or they hope to be. <laughs> Mr. Meekin, yeah, I know I'm you've got another comment. I'm still laughing. <laughs> um, I forgot what I was going to say now. <laughs> well, so, let me, I can take you with oh, a little no, bit. Okay, go ahead. Um, I'm reading an art, uh, a book, actually, and an article by uh, Harvard political scientist whose last name is Allison. And he has done a study of 16 situations over the last 500 years where the hegemon is being challenged by the challenger. And out of those 16, um, most of them, about 12, as I recall, out of the 16, end in war. And his book is called Thucydides' Trap, going all the way back to the time when Athens was challenging Sparta. Now, Sparta rebuffed Athens, but almost destroyed herself in the process. So this is the key question I think we're facing uh, in a world which is increasingly dominated by China, will the transition, if there be one, uh, from America to China, is that going to be peaceful and, uh, or is it going to be violent? And who controls that? It tends to be the one who's being challenged that wants to resist that and fight it off. Or is there another way of accommodating it? That's a big question. Let me ask you, uh, we'll get into the, the weeds here just a little bit more. What are some of the examples that we have now from China where China is um, moving forward with their agenda and perhaps actions that they are taking or have taken that really cause pause, uh, both from a, I guess, a um, stability perspective, world stability, but also from a, a threat to uh, sort of the world order? Well, I uh, just mentioned that China has been aggressive militarily in the past, and that's in the China Sea. Um, many Americans don't know that they did invade the Paracel Islands and killed, I don't know, like, like 60, 70, 80 Vietnamese who were there. They had two battalions come in and take on a small force of Vietnamese there. They also did the same for the Spratly Islands. They sank some Vietnamese ships in doing all of this. What was the time sequence? Uh, the roughly? 70s for the Paracels, 88, I think, for the Spratlys. That was okay. very shocking, Fairly particularly to the Philippines and other areas, that they would behave that aggressively. This was an out-and-out -out 
military invasion with Marines moving into and taking over an island. So that really got a lot of people's notice there. So they are serious about securing that extremely important Seagate that goes through the uh, South China Sea and then goes around the Straits of Malacca that Singapore sits on. If I were Singaporeans, I might be a little nervous right now. There's a smiling lion looking around the, the region there. So. I think that has gotten people's attention, plus their great um, strides that they've been making in military force, um, high-speed missiles that are lining the coast there to secure that particular area. They now have an aircraft carrier uh, that's maybe not fully as operational as uh, one U.S. carrier force, but still they're building these things very rapidly. So they are serious about being military hegemonic in Asia, that's for sure. Mr. Meekin, here's another little there. Well, another little quote coming from the Chinese. They said this: "No country should attempt to dominate regional security um, affairs or infringe on the legitimate rights and interests of other countries." Well, that's their point of view, and I've written down below: unless it's China, <laughs> the hegemon dictates the narrative. And in terms of answering your question, what is there to be concerned about? Recently, the head of the American Navy, Admiral Richardson, went over there for discussions. And he came back and said, oh, what a wonderful discussion it was. We talked about communication and blah, blah, blah. But from the other side uh, of, the, of the story, there was just a continual belligerent attack by uh, the Chinese uh, higher military, with a couple of them making the most bellicose noises about how they would enjoy uh, sinking one of the American or more of the American um, aircraft carriers, and uh, you know, which would kill 10,000 people. So uh, uh, why all this military development if you're peaceful? Why are we going for a missile, this hyper-missile that can be launched from space, and it would, you know, it would go straight through your carrier and blow it out of the water before you'd either seen it or heard it? So it's the ideological noises in the background, uh, as well as um, observed uh, events happening on the ground that gives cause for pause and to ponder about the real nature of what's before our eyes. Mm -hmm. There have also been um, uh, nonviolent encounters between U.S. and Chinese ships in the South China Sea. They've come up and, you know, within, I think, 40 meters, 30 or 40 meters, and headed off ships and pushed them around. Very dangerous things. We now actually have, I understand, a, uh, a, a hotline with the Chinese. If any of these things get out of hand, that they can communicate with each other to keep it from growing. There have been aircraft encounters where their jets have um, uh, harassed ours, just like the Russians have in other parts of Europe. So their military, I, I wonder sometimes, are they completely under control over there? Mm -hmm. And could they do something that could really set off some nasty action? The two heads of the governments hope to be able to prevent that from happening, but I'm not so sure. Have, you, have either of you read anything on uh, China taking over ports of other nations? John, you want to well, I think there's a couple of good examples. There's one in Kenya and another one in, in Sri Lanka where they were invited to come and invest in those ports. And then in the process of all that happening, um, it didn't work out very well. Um, the host nation ended up going into lots of, of debt. And the result of that, the Chinese taking over the ports lock, stock and barrel. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And of course, some people will say, well, yes, but just because you take over a port doesn't mean to say you can make it work. Well, I wouldn't bet against that when you see what she has managed to do over the past year of what he came to power in 2012, uh, following on from all that Deng uh, and, and, and others did. Uh, in in Okay, going back, is it 40 years or something? I think it was 99% of China, its people, were surviving on something like $2 a day. Well, now it's, it's the reverse. Only 1% are on less than or more, $2 or less per day. <laughs> yes, so all of this is an amazing transformation uh, that has taken place. So um, when it comes to those ports, they, they, they will take over those ports. Uh, they've invested in Heathrow Airport, would you know? They've invested in nuclear, nuclear construction um, capacity just a few miles from where I live at Hinckley in, uh, in the southwest of England. The tentacles are going everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is in one sense good because they're investing and, and they're helping and they're bringing everything on but it's always this undercurr- undercurrent kind of concern and worry in the long term uh, as to the way it may well finally work out. Let me get to Mr. Wakefield uh, before I do that I'll go ahead and let you make a comment and then I actually uh, want to shift gears a little bit and let's talk just a couple of minutes to see if the Bible has anything to say and may give us some insights into what's going on in China with this, even with the New Silk Road project. Mr. Wakefield, though. Just add a quick thing to what uh, John said about that. Uh, you know, if you, if you have a house but you have very poor credit, you've got to have some money so you go and get a loan on it and it's from, a, from a lender at a high interest rate, maybe a private lender. Well, that's called loan to own. The guy hopes to foreclose on the house because he's going to make a profit on it. That's what they, well, that's kind of what China is at least is being accused of doing in some of these ports. They know that it's not going to work out economically, mm-hmm. but they're doing that in order to gain control of a particular area, sort of a big version of loan to own, or at least that's the criticism. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So thoughts about the Bible. What kind of insights does Scripture give us into what may be going on here or where the Silk Road could lead in the future? Well, in one of the books I've been reading about China, and I really like to lock myself away and stop the world and read all these wonderful books, uh, it begins with a quote. And in that quote, it says, the Bible doesn't say anything about China. Well, uh, I suppose in direct terms, it doesn't. And it doesn't say uh, much in direct terms about Britain, America, Although uh, we have a very strong uh, take on all of that, and in fact it does, and maybe it does about China as well. But certainly in the book of Revelation, uh, in the day of the Lord, just prior to the end of this age and the return of Christ, uh, the Bible talks about an army of 200 million coming from the east and heading for the Middle East. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to ask the question, and give an answer as to where where they must come from because east from there you're into asia and uh, you know what's, what what nation is there so populous and so capable uh, of, of of doing that think of just the logistics of moving an army of 200 million how do you feed them how do you transport them you know what about their equipment you know the logistics of some of this is just out of sight so we think that the Bible does have some hints, and perhaps even more than that, to say about uh, the future prophetically. It does mention uh, the kings of the East, 
and those are the 200 million people. How to get them over, in the past it has not been possible. Now the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, the, all the transportation facilities, meant for trade, could, mean, could be also used for military transportation and invasion. The Euphrates River has to dry up. All of these things happen, and then the kings of the east come over in a great conflict with the west. So um, that it, the, the person who said that they are not mentioned, the kings of the east most certainly are, and they are even described. Mm. Mm. Gentlemen, we are about out of time. I'd love to continue this conversation. But before we go, I would like you to, uh, each of you, share with our audience perhaps one <coughs> parting comment or a takeaway that you would like to leave our audience with. And it may or may not relate to the question, is China going to rule the world? Um, but uh, go ahead and leave us with your, your parting comment, if you would. Mr. Meekin. Okay. China is a nation of 1.4 billion people. America is a nation of something like 20, 325 million. Uh, their economies are already about on a par, or, or depending how you look at it, uh, with China coming up fast. Now, how that uh, potential conflict of interest and ideology uh, and, and just way of doing things is going to be married, managed is really one of the most key issues of our modern world. We don't really think about it very much in the West, but it, no understanding of world politics is complete, or even the world military is complete, without including China and taking into account the direction of travel that China is going. I think China has two vulnerabilities, and I think it is driving a lot of what they're doing. One of them, as I mentioned before, is their debt structure. It's a lot worse than people think, and they must cope with it, and I think the Belt and Road Initiative is part of a large, huge plan to help accomplish and, uh, and do that. The other, well, you know, they have extraordinary control over their people there. All the electronic advances that they're doing allow them to look into the lives of the people and the, li the Chinese people have submitted to this so far in an amazing way. Can you imagine that happening to America or some other places? Well, maybe not. So maybe their second vulnerability is going to be freedom because when they have this Belt and Road Initiative, they want to spread, as they have said, Chinese values along the way. That's a statement that uh, they have made about this. So if they do spread this, will the freedoms that people have and the longing of the human spirit to be free and to be able to express itself. And so for all of the things that we take for granted, that uh, people will begin to get this idea that they need more freedom and that could also uh, be a major Achilles heel uh, for the China's plans. Thank you, gentlemen, both of you. Thanks for opening our eyes a little bit more. China gets a lot of press, but most of it's the South China Sea and perhaps their economy, but we don't normally get this kind of an insight into really the backbone and the history of what's motivating uh, this massive and ancient country. China is certainly a rising star on the world stage. And in the words of China's leader himself, the sleeping lion is awakening. China has a major world ambition and major goals, economically, militarily, technologically, and politically. While other nations, including the U.S., seem to be focusing far more on internal matters, China seems to be reaching out to fill a power vacuum left by departing world powers like the United States and Britain. 
China does have ambitions and is moving forward toward them. However, China will not rule the world as some fear. It will not even be the major future threat to the United States. That role is reserved for another prophesied nation. To find out more about the future of China, be sure to read or download our insightful article, Is This China's Century? And you can find that at tomorrowsworld.org. To discover more answers to today's big questions, be sure to stay tuned to TW Now. Next week, we plan to discuss how to have a happy marriage. So we'll take a little bit different tack next week. We encourage you to be sure to subscribe, like, or share today's program. And we'll see you again next week.